Hey folks, welcome to another episode of The Electables. Uh, we are less than a week from the election, uh, which is unbelievable. Um, you know, we started this podcast uh, really before the, um, right at the very beginning of the Democratic primary contest. And now we are just uh, literally just a few days out from the election. Um, as always, I'm joined by my super producer, Michael Pelliquin. Mike, how you doing, my friend? Are you uh, uh, are you going crazy, or are you have you been able to take some trazodone and calm down? <laughs> the uh, anticipation is killing me, but um, I'm definitely looking forward to next week. Can't believe it's actually here, and um, and uh, definitely excited to see the results. Um, polls are coming in, you know both national and battleground polls every day. Uh, and, um, you know, at, at this point, my advice to folks is to, um, you know, look at the national polls. They're, they're, they're not, they're, they're not insignificant and they're not pointless. Um, uh, but really it's the battleground polls and it's really to me, Pennsylvania, um, and then looking at Florida, um, and then, you know, obviously Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona. The reason why, you know, Florida is not, it is not critical to Biden winning the presidency, but if Trump loses Florida, it's over with, in my estimation. Um, I think the state that both campaigns absolutely need is Pennsylvania. Um, and then when you look at Wisconsin, that's a state that Biden looks like he's doing really well in based off of, you know, some of the, um, you know, some of the polling that exists now. Um, but it's also a state that, you know, like Michigan, uh, in, uh, in, you know, it's a, you know, a, a you know, a, a Rust Belt, uh, Midwestern state. There was some evidence that, uh, that, uh, Clinton in 16 actually underperformed. I mean, she did underperform <laughs> her numbers, going into election day, she actually overperformed in, in a state like Arizona. So um, Biden can um, win the presidency uh, if he wins Arizona, he can and does not if, and doesn't and he doesn't win uh, Wisconsin. If he can hold on to Hillary Clinton's states, add those three states, uh, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, he can win the presidency if he can win it with losing Pennsylvania and winning Arizona. Um, he seems to have a number of um, more paths to, to the White House than the president does. But the president obviously is still, you know, he can still win. Um, and, uh, you know, we learned last time around, you can never, you know, you, you the polls can be, can, can look good. But it's also, remember, all of these polls, there's a margin of error. I think a lot of times people forget about that when they look at, um, state polls. Uh, and, you know, if Biden's up two or three or four points in some of these states, he could be actually tied with Trump. He could be, in some cases, losing by a point. Uh, he might be up by seven. You know, you don't know. The margin of error is something that I think reporters oftentimes, it's sort of a, an, you know, a footnote, but it's important because, and, and, I, and you are seeing a lot of, vera, you know, a variability um, between the, the different polls that are out there. 538 um, is the aggregator I like to use the most. They they also grade the polling outfits that are putting stuff out there. I think it's important. You know, they also don't include certain polling outfits in their aggregating uh, uh, 
uh, platform, which I think makes sense because some of these, I think, clearly are new are efforts to boost Trump's overall number um, for a whole host of, host of reasons. Um, so, um, but the other thing to keep in mind is people are voting and they are voting like we haven't seen before. Early vote um, is through the roof. And to help us dissect that is a, um, uh, is a uh, uh, very well-known um, democratic political strategist uh, and the CEO of Target Smart, Tom Bonier. Um, Target Smart's the Democratic Party's uh, leading voter file and data company. Um, prior to uh, joining Target Smart in 2015, he, uh, Tom co-founded Clarity Campaign Labs. Um, he spent more than 20 years working in Democratic and progressive politics. He is uh, he was the COO at an organization that many that I think everyone in the in, in the party knows about NCEC, the National Committee for Effective Congress. Um, he's also a guest lecturer at Howard University this semester. Uh, that's where my dad taught law uh, for a very long time. So, uh, Tom, welcome to the Electables. Thank you for joining and helping us uh, break down uh, both early vote numbers, but also, as I mentioned before we got on air, just sort of taking our listeners through the whole importance of, you know, the, the, the data component of what the party and campaigns are doing, how the party has built that over the last 20 years, how, you know, how important it you know, the voter file is to, to, um, to campaigns and, um, and really just, you know, lending your expertise to the show. So thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, just real briefly, talk to us about Target Smart. You've been, you're the CEO there. You joined, uh, <clears throat> right before the, or a year before the 2016 election. So you've been there through both a presidential and a midterm. Now your second presidential as, as Target, at Target Smart. What's Target Smart? What do you guys do? How do you help uh, how are you helping campaigns? Yeah, so Target Smart, as, as you said, we've, we've been around since 2006, though I joined in 2015. Target Smart was founded sort of at, at the beginning of this boom on the Democratic progressive side of big data, right? There was this sort of realization coming out of the 2004 campaign that, um, you know, Republicans were doing a lot of things smarter than we were. Uh, and they were adopting a lot of techniques from the consumer marketing world with individual level data. So Target Smart was founded as an answer to that, to take some of the sort of best practices of the consumer marketing world and then the knowledge and know-how from the political organizing world and put them together to the, the benefit of Democrats and progressives. Uh, it was founded by two partners who actually came out of that consumer data world, uh, Drew and Steve Brighton. Um, who who came out of Axiom, one of the biggest data companies in the world, uh, and then two other partners, Jeff Ferguson and Paula Kowalczyk, who came out of the progressive world. Jeff had worked at the the DSCC for a long time on the tech and, and data side of things, uh, and so that was really the, the 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 creation of Target Smart still is in our DNA. We're always out trying to find the sort of new, latest, greatest. Uh, uh, data, tools, tactics, learning from the consumer data world, though, frankly, we're in a position now where the consumer data world is learning from us in a lot of ways. Uh, and so that's really at the core. That's still at the core now, almost 15 years later. We we build and maintain in partnership with the Democratic National Committee, with all the state Democratic parties through the Association of State Democratic Chairs, uh, national voter file of 210 some odd million registered voters, then maybe another 55 million people for whom we have consumer history. Uh, and that's the core of everything we do. 
we do a lot of things built off on top of that, uh, that it's, you know, our focus is on basically integrating those tools because that's, that's the number one thing, right? Like you can have the smart data, but we've seen in past campaigns where we have really smart data, but we don't focus enough on actually how to implement it and how it can be used by, you know, the most important part, the people on the ground who are using it. So we have a focus on that too, meaning we have a team, we have a polling team, we have uh, a, 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 a strategic consulting team. We have a bunch of teams that sort of sit on top of uh, the voter file and just help folks with the implementation. So that's that's broadly uh, uh, Target Smart in a, in a quick nutshell. We've grown a lot. I mean, from the, the early days before I joined, when there were just a few folks. When I joined in 2015, I think we had maybe around 30 folks, and now we're somewhere north of 100. So you mentioned, um, Tom, you know, I think, you know, many, you know, some years ago, and I, and I remember the 04 race extremely well. I, um, and I actually was at the, the DSCC um, and on, uh, I did a stint on um, uh, Howard Dean's campaign and then ended up at uh, the DSCC. And I remember, and I remember that race extremely well, particularly the, the postmortems on it. And, and what at least my recollection is, is that there was that the Republicans and the Bush campaign in particular got a lot of credit for being able to, and this was, you know, under the, um, you know, Carl Rove's leadership, being able to identify um, Republican voters that folks didn't even knew existed, right? And particularly in Ohio. And this was, you know, the micro-targeting that sort of came out of that campaign, how they did that. And there was a sense, as you pointed out, that Republicans were in a sort of a different level than we were at that time. What's happened between 04 and now um, to change the, you know, the, to change the game and, and sort of put Democrats in a better position? Obviously, you had a great, you know, you had the Obama campaign, which was, <laughs> you know, I think, took data to a, a slightly different level, but what's, what's actually, what's happened structurally from a data standpoint that's helped the party? Yeah. And, and Doug, that's the perfect example. And it's funny you said Ohio, because as you started to talk about 2004, that was immediately what came to my mind. I mean, as that is the first sort of post McCain Feingold election where we totally changed how presidential campaigns worked because we couldn't do the soft money thing anymore, at least not like we used to, where it could go through our party organizations. And you're right. The 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 story that that those of us who were there, and I'm sure you remember as as well, because you brought it up, was Ohio, where we hit all our vote goals and we lost. Uh, and, and and that was exactly the indicator that, well, hey, we need to be a little bit smarter about this. And so, to your point, a big part of that was you know what what our voter files looked like then, nothing like what they look like now. Uh, predictive modeling was not a thing. We had basic information on individuals in terms of contact information, and even that wasn't always great. You know, cell phones are beginning to emerge at that point as a, a, a more prevalent form of communication, and that wasn't something that we really had a lot of access to. But beyond knowing someone's you know name, age, their sex, maybe some sense of race and ethnicity, uh, we didn't know a lot more. And and that election sort of it, it, it shone a light on uh, the idea that we had to have a better depth of understanding of the political decision-making process, right? Because in the end, it's a decision whether or not someone is going to vote on election day and, and what can change that behavior. 
and for which candidate they're likely to support and how we can modify that. What's the right message, messenger, mode of communication? And so we realized we had to first bulk up the data we have on individuals because with that limited information we had, you could never answer those questions. So what that meant was going out and getting a lot of consumer data from these consumer data sources, data that was intended to give a better depiction of people's purchasing decisions, that decision-making process and how you could modify it. But you realize at that point, well, there's a lot of similarities there in terms of persuasive communication, whether it's about voting or about uh, someone's consumer choices. So we brought in a lot of that data. When I say a lot of that data, I'm talking about thousands of variables at the individual level, most of which you look at and say really aren't relevant to the political process. And frankly, if you tried to use them individually as a campaign and said, well, let me pick out people, you know, you always hear these apocryphal stories of, well, people who drive pickup trucks are more likely to be Republican and Volkswagens, Democrats. Well, sure. But in reality, that wasn't the sort of targeting we were doing. What we were doing was bringing in this analytics process, modeling, uh, meaning if you've got a few thousand variables on each individual on a file, you'll drown in them. So you have to have a systematic process where you can go through and use the sort of computers that we didn't have when I was working at NCC beginning in the 90s that could sort through all of that and take out all the things that are relevant and find the data points and say, well, you know what, you know, actually... Uh, this data point on whether or not someone is in the scrapbooking or not actually seems somewhat predictive of their position on minimum wage or support for a candidate. So all of that gets thrown in the mix. You mentioned the Obama campaign where there was really a leap forward because you saw just so many people coming out of the woodwork, you know, the, 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 the best and brightest from academia, from corporate world who all suddenly wanted to get involved in our world. And so we were able to, to work hand in hand with these people and have this knowledge transfer to basically build up our data and analytics tools and systems. That was by far the, the, the watershed moment uh, in terms of democratic progressive politics and, and the leap forward in our ability to, to use data and analytics at a higher level. And then since when, then we've been building on it again, always looking for new tools. I mean, the, the last part that I'll touch on is just the digital component obviously is, as the media landscape gets more and more fragmented, it's harder to get voters' attention. It's harder to know where their eyes are. And then they're looking at screens that, you know, aren't always the TV screen sitting in the living room. We had to find a way to marry the offline data of a voter file with the online data of, uh, of these screens. And so, you know, that's been the, 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 the most recent frontier over the last handful of cycles is matching to online profiles using that digital data to better understand uh, these voters and their decision-making. Um, you know, that's, that's really been the latest advance. Can you take us through and uh, briefly just like the modeling process that you're talking about yep. so for folks who don't really fully understand what, what that means and, and um, because it is a relatively, you know, within the last 20 year, 15, you know, 10, 15 years, a new way about new way that campaigns have gone about sort of figuring out who their voters are and who their voters aren't. Yeah, it's a great question, because it's really a, a pretty opaque process. And I think I mentioned these these stories of, you know, Volvo drivers and, and pickup truck drivers. And, um, you know, I drive a pickup truck. <laughs> I'm a Democrat. Right. So <laughs> it, 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 it's, um, 
the media reports on this haven't been super helpful in actually answering your question. So I'll, I'll do my best, uh, to, to dig into it at a, at a, at a more digestible level. So, like I said, we have these massive data sets and we look at them. And again, if you were trying to understand them at a micro level, you just couldn't possibly. Now, on the other hand, we have the status quo at that point, you know, 15 years ago, maybe where when campaigns had to make targeting decisions, meaning do I knock on this door or that door? Do I call this voter or that voter? Do I send this voter a piece of mail or that voter? What does the piece of mail say? The biggest tool we had was polling. Um, and, and polling is not built for that level of micro decision making. It's macro, right? It's where do things stand? What are the messages they're resonating? Broadly, which groups are they resonating with? But I mean broadly, right? Because once you start to get down to a, a narrow level, you just don't have enough sample size to be able to say, all right. And that's the problem we had, uh, you know, in Ohio in 2004. Well, who are our persuasion targets there? Well, you know, independent women. Well, how do I find an independent woman on a voter file? You don't have party registration in Ohio. Everyone looks like an independent. So the targeting, there was a huge gap there in terms of the tools we had and our ability to execute on them versus the campaign side, the field side, which we were very targeted. We just needed to fuel it with information. So the way modeling works real quickly, you have these huge data sets on the voter file. We, we uh, field surveys, but not like a traditional poll because you've got to talk to a lot of people to get rid of that margin of error issue. So I'm talking about in a state, you might talk to five or 10,000 people. Problem with that is if you did that in a poll, it would cost you probably about a million dollars to field a survey. And, right. and, you know, the whole point of modeling is efficiency and efficacy, right? You want to talk to the right people, not the wrong people, but you also want to make sure that you're talking to them with the right message that's going to get them out or move, change their behavior in the way you need to. Uh, so if you spend a million dollars to do the modeling, well, you might have the perfect model, but you just blew all your budget on the model. It's not, it's not going to help. So super short survey, meaning three, four, five questions. You know, it might be a vote likelihood question. Uh, you'll, you'll ask a head to head, you'll ask some favorabilities, and then you'll ask basically anything else that you're going to model. So some, some you'll, you might test some messages or some issue positions. That's it. You match those responses back to the voter file. And then here's where I'm going to use a montage because uh, what happens next is above my level of comprehension. And thankfully, I get to work with people much smarter uh, than I am who, who, who do this. But we're talking about computer scientists, data scientists, statisticians who will then match those data sets up and they look for relationships. So, oh, these four different data points are predictive of how someone would answer this question. And sometimes it's not one data point by itself. It's five data points together. So if you look at age, gender, party registration, and someone's occupation, education, and income together, it's predictive of which candidate they support, right? By themselves, it might not be as predictive. Uh, most of the predictive variables in a model are things you would expect, even though we like to talk about the consumer variables. Realistically, the consumer variables help in the margin. They're not silver bullets. The stuff, the most valuable stuff is the stuff that's collected on the ground, at the doors, by the campaigns who are going out and IDing voters. Because if you've knocked on someone's door and they say they're likely to vote for a Democrat, well, guess what? The model's going to pick up on that and say, yeah, this person's probably a Democrat. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's not rocket science, but and is what that happens is it can find other people look like them. And that information is fed back into the, the model? Yeah, that, so that all gets fed back in. And in the end, the computer spits out a score 
So like everyone will have, so the typical models you have will be like turnout, partisanship, and then issue models. So everyone will get scored zero to 100. So on a turnout score, zero, someone's not going to vote in this auction. 100, someone's definitely going to vote and everywhere in between, right? So it gives us a sense of, is this someone who needs a push or are they just going to vote no matter what we do? If they're 90% plus, they're going to vote no matter, let's not give them a push to vote, but if they're definitely going to vote and there's someone that we think is persuadable, well, let's definitely make sure they're in our, 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 our mail universe, our phone universe, our, we're thinking about them in our media plan. Same thing with partisanship. A hundred, uh, they're most likely to be a Democrat. Zero, they're most, most likely to be a, a Republican. Uh, and then issues, you know, like, again, we have, we have on our file now um, well over 100 different models that get into ideological things, different issues, a turnout for different elections. We have more models than we actually expose on the file just because uh, it, it, it would be too much data. <laughs> um, but that's, that's broadly how, how modeling works, how it's created. So let me, let's go back to 2016, um, a year that I think all of us would like to, uh, at least an election that I think most of us would like to forget. Absolutely. Um, you had, uh, so you, you had, uh, you had joined Target Smart in 2015, 2016, you were over there. You were seeing, you know, you were a lot of, you know, there was a lot of promising, uh, uh, data coming in on early vote. I think a lot of Democrats were looking at the numbers and seeing and, and feeling good about things. Fast forward to 2020, same thing, you know, like I'm on Target Smart's page right now and you can get there at targetsmart.com, uh, uh, their insights page. I'm looking at a posting from two day, uh, to October 27th and, you know, it, it, it talks about the first time voter surge, which is great news. That's like for Democrats, particularly they, they seem to be uh, younger. Um, these are voters who had never voted before. Um, so obviously, and we're seeing promising news pretty much everywhere. You're seeing some sense that Republicans are catching up in a pla in place like Florida. But so just 2016 versus 2020, what what's the difference? What Like, why should Democrats feel better about 2020 right now than they did in 2016? Or yeah, should that, they? That That's the key question. And and this is one where I'm, I'm going to own some mistakes, which 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 I, I, I will say maybe there, there's not enough of that in, in our line of work, but I'm going to own it here. In 2016, as you alluded to, we were focusing on the early vote. Just it, it, there was an explosion in early vote, right? It was a, the election where we had seen a ramping up in early vote in prior elections. Then 2016, it just exploded where you had, I think, close to 40 eight million votes cast before election day it was a record by I think more than 10 million votes. And when we looked at those votes in total, they were democratic, right? It looked good for Hillary Clinton. Uh, it, she had a lead. She had a clear lead. We don't know how these people are voting. We can talk more about that. We only know if they're voting. We don't know how they're voting. So, but when we have these partisan models that I was talking about and we have party registration, we could look at and say, well, there are more people who look a lot like Democrats who are voting than the people who look a lot like Republicans. Therefore, we feel pretty good. And so I was out there, you know, beating that drum of, you know, and you combine it with the polling, to be clear. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously is is. As, uh, as you talked about in the introduction, we, we're well aware now of a, a lot of the, the potential error in that, uh, let another lesson learned from 2016. But we felt good about it. And then obviously uh, the results come and they're not what we expected and they're not consistent with what we were seeing in the early vote. And, 
And I spent a lot of time, as did my team, digging into this immediately after election and saying, what, what do we get wrong? And, and how do we fix it? How do we do better? And the number one thing we found, uh, really, that almost entirely uh, accounts for, for the error, was a failure to look at the early vote in the context of past behavior and therefore predicted future behavior. What that means is that Democratic lead was built up largely upon a surge in turnout from people who were going to vote anyhow. And so now you hear people use that term when they talk about early vote, can voter cannibalization. What that means sounds pretty grim. <laughs> what it means is, look, there are a bunch of voters who are going to vote on election day, as I said before, the turnout models, people with a turnout score of 90% plus, they're going to vote no matter what. And so just because they vote two weeks before Election Day, yeah, there's there are tactical advantages to that that we get to get into. You bank the vote. You don't have to communicate with them anymore. Um, but it's not indicative of any sort of enthusiasm advantage for that party. The vote counts just the same as the voter who votes on Election Day. Uh, meanwhile, on the Republican side in their early vote, even though they had fewer votes, the people who they were turning out were more likely to be those first-time voters, those infrequent voters, it was showing, not universally, obviously we know Hillary Clinton won the popular vote nationally, but if you looked at places like Michigan and Wisconsin and Florida, these key states that were decisive in 2016, that's where Republicans had built up that advantage. So lesson learned, what we applied in the 2018 election was don't focus on, it doesn't matter who has a lead overall, it's who has a lead among these unlikely voters, these sporadic voters, the, the voters who are the turnout targets of either campaign, because that's a sign of intensity. And so we saw that in 2018, weeks out, and we paid a lot of attention to it, that, look, we kept telling people there's a surge in youth vote. There's, and everyone said, well, young people don't vote. We said, well, they're going to vote in this one. <laughs> they're coming. Uh, and that's what we saw. They went from being uh, about 6% of the electorate in 2014 to 11.5% of the electorate in 2018, their electorate share almost doubled between elections. So you look at that and you look at the blue wave election and our margin in the house, that doesn't happen if that youth vote surge wasn't where it was. And again, it's not to say that it was just younger voters. It was a broad democratic coalition, but that's one example of how we were able to use the early vote. So to your question, why should we feel good about the, what we're seeing in the early vote this time as a, as, as a Democrat? Well, uh, when we look at who has voted, so yeah, a lot of people have voted. Over 80 million people have voted. It's shattered oh, wow. the record from 2016. Have we gone to, we went for, okay, yeah, you're, because, yeah, we were, so in just three days, we added another 20 million. Yes. Yeah. Wow. It's super, super fast acceleration in the last handful of days. And, you know, it's right. normally what we see the closer you get to election day, the, the, yeah. the bigger the acceleration, but this is unprecedented. I mean, we're, we're in a position where by tomorrow we may have doubled the early vote from 2016. And so part of that is to be expected. There's two things, two answers that a cynic will respond to my last comment with. One is, well, people were going to vote early more anyhow because of the pandemic. Absolutely. And I'll address that in a second. Two, well, Republicans are going to vote on Election Day. If I tell you Democrats have a lead in the early vote, they'll say, well, we're going to vote on Election Day. And I'll get to that too. But the key thing that we're seeing and the reason why Democrats should feel uh, more optimistic. And I will say, the one thing I can't tell you from the early vote is who is going to win. Uh, there's still a lot of the story is, is, is yet to be written, and it will be written over uh, the next few days here. Uh, 
The reason Democrats should feel optimistic is because more than one in four of those voters who have voted early didn't vote in 2016. So you're talking about a number approaching, and when we get the more numbers in today, likely exceeding 20 million votes cast by people who weren't part of that 2016 electorate. And when you look at those people, they're significantly more likely to be Democrats, whether through party registration or modeled partisanship, than uh, than those people who did vote in 16 and have already voted. Meaning these sporadic voters, these turnout targets, they're way more likely to be ours than theirs. So, um, and, and there's just way more of them than we generally see. So clearly, even though, yes, a big part of this early vote is people voting early instead of a, on election day because they want to, uh, because it's safer, 20 million of them, you can't say that about. These are people who are, on defense voters and they're coming out and they're and they're more likely to vote for Dems. The second part of that to whether or not uh, Republicans are going to come out on Election Day, of course they are. Of, of course they're coming out on Election Day. The challenge that they have is both in terms of size and in terms of uh, in, in terms of their ability to get it done. And what that means is size. Well, the Republican base we know is intense, but we also know it's been limited. In, in number. President Trump's numbers have been stuck for his entire presidency in the high 30s, low 40s, and they won't go above that. So are there enough of them to turn out on Election Day and reverse this gap? That'll be question number one. Follow up to that is, uh, can you get it done in one day? This Democratic advantage has been built up over look, voting. Voting started in this election in mid-September in many states in states like Minnesota, where they were they were voting in mid-September and then many other states in the week or two after that. So Democrats have had more than a month to build up this advantage. And what that means, and you know this, Doug, from a tactical perspective, uh, the, the, what an advantage it is when you're in a state that has early vote and affords that. Because when you have a target who goes to vote on a Monday and they see a line that looks like it's about eight hours long and they don't have a job that affords them the opportunity to be in line for eight hours, they can come back the next day or the next day or the next day. And they have a month of next days to get it done. Right. Uh, uh, Republicans won't have that luxury on Election Day. They have one day in the midst of a spiking pandemic. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, it's important to point out. And I, I, I think everything you just said is, is is absolutely spot on. I think it's also important to point out, look, Democrats and Republicans and independents, they all have had the opportunity to vote early in these states. Right. It's just that Democrats have encouraged um, voters to vote early. Uh, in a way that Republicans, particularly this president who has discouraged and tried to raise doubts on the validity of early vote. And it's really hurt the Republicans, I think. You know, it's not as if you're saying it's not like you're saying that only Democrats, right, can vote early. That's, That's obviously right. not the case. All of us have been able to vote early and all. And it's just that there has been an, an, an effort by Democrats, by progressive organizations, by social justice groups to encourage people to go out and vote early for your to uh, really to your point about one, it, it relieves congestion at polling locations on Election Day Two, it's money that uh, campaigns don't have to spend on GOTV at the, the last week in terms of whether that's canvassing, if they're doing any canvassing, phoning. Um, Etc. Right, and it's also people who can volunteer that la on election day and the days before. Right, that's all the reasons why it makes sense to to do early vote. 
it, because you don't, you know, at the end of the day, you much rather have these votes in your pocket than have to rely on, as you said, getting them all out on election day. But Republicans have had this. This has been Republicans could have been doing all of this, too. You know, and to me, I think one of the things if Biden wins and it's an if because, look, uh, we all got to see it, you know, like I'm confident I'm in, in what their campaign's doing. But the fact that the president has tried to depress turnout on his side of the aisle so much, I think in general, but it, I think it is hurt. And I don't know, you're, you see numbers much more. You, you've seen you've been in, you've seen this like going, dating years back, but. To my recollection, like early vote used to be a Republican thing in some yep. places. Absentee balloting was something that Republicans always did better than Democrats at. And he's really sort of undermined that. Oh, he has. I, I, I mean, that's the, the, the absolutely wild thing about this, right, is you're seeing this dichotomy where the president is out there demagoguing against voting by mail as fraud. And then meanwhile, you see the Republican National Committee, state Republican parties, and people in his campaign, right? I, I'm, I'm signed up on his campaign's email list. I'm getting the emails encouraging me to vote by mail. We're seeing that across battleground states. Uh, as you said, Republicans, especially in key states like Florida, look, Republicans in Florida uh, traditionally rely on what, what is, frankly, a very good vote by mail, early vote effort to win in Florida. That's, that's what they've done there, and they do it probably better than anyone anywhere. And it's not that they aren't doing it. As you say, it's, it's important to note, like their campaign is still trying to push vote by mail and Republicans are voting by mail. They're just not nearly keeping up. Um, and, you know, the best place to see this effect, this vote suppressive effect that the president is, uh, the president's comments are having on his own base is Oregon. Because and I've been fascinated by this because Oregon's a state that's been vote by mail exclusively for a while now. It's one of the states that doesn't have an Election Day option other than you can drop your ballot off. But, you know, the other vote by mail states, Colorado, you can go out and vote at a at a uh, election center on Election Day. But in Oregon, if you don't vote by mail, you're not voting. <laughs> and Republican turnout there is severely depressed. And I'm thinking, when are these people going to vote? They realize that this is it. Right. And, you know, I mean, they're lucky that presidentially it's not a competitive state anyhow. But when you think about down ballot in Oregon and state legislative races and that sort of thing, you see the damage that the president's comments um, have done to to his party in 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 general. So yeah, it's it's a that's very a really good, good point. That's make. a great point. Yeah, where where else are you? Like Oregon's an interesting. What about Colorado? Yeah, so Colorado is interesting. I mean, and again, the question will be what the election day surge is, and and there again, technically Republicans can come out on election day, and we do yeah. expect them to come out more, but. Uh, but that's, you know, again, they're, 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 they're backing themselves into a very small, very precarious corner on election day. Uh, and and they'll really have, it's not that they can't get out of it. It's not that they can't turn out of enough voters to win. It just becomes increasingly improbable and difficult to the point where they'll have to do just about every single thing right and also just hope at the, the other because there's someone on the other side of the chessboard and that's democrats who have been waiting for four years for this moment right uh, and and uh, democrats will still be coming out on election day to be clear like it's just you know even though we've we've come out in huge numbers so far there will still be significant democratic turnout especially among younger voters african-american voters when you look at the polling 
they, uh, among Democratic voters, were most likely to say they would prefer to vote on Election Day. So I still anticipate seeing big numbers on that side, that even if the Republicans do put big numbers on the board on Election Day, question is, can they keep up with what's happening on the other side? I want to talk about three states uh, real quick. Texas. Talk to me about Texas. Yeah. What are we saying there? So Texas is a fascinating one. And if like, you know, obviously because of 2018 and the Beto O'Rourke, uh, Ted Cruz race, it was a little bit on the radar this time. But I think if you had told me even just several weeks ago that we'd be sitting here just days out from the election talking about Texas, I'd say probably not. And, and here we are. I think Texas is legitimately a toss up at this point. We've seen now some of the, the prognosticators have actually uh, uh, deemed it officially a toss up, whatever that means. Uh, but when you look at the early vote data there, Texas is insane. So Texas just surpassed its 2016 turnout. Uh, more people have voted in Texas already than voted in the entirety of the 2016 election. Uh, so that tells you a little something. But again, that by itself, not necessarily meaningful. The early vote lets us break it down. And what we see is if you compare to uh, the, the final electorate in 2016, what we see is Big differences, especially with white voters. You see college-educated white voters, their share of the electorate compared to the 2016 electorate is uh, about five points higher. Conversely- Which is good for Democrats. For good for Democrats. That... I mean, if, if, if Biden's going to win there, those are the voters who have who have moved away. They're mostly suburban voters, and they're voters right. who, who traditionally would have been reliable Republican votes, and they have just fled from the party. That's why right. you hear President Trump talking about suburban women a lot, because he's spitting <laughs> something out that Bill Stepien told him to say, I'm sure. Um, and, and the flip side of that coin is non-college white voters. Their turnout share is down by about five points. When you The look, turnout share of the, yeah, of of the, early, the, the early vote yeah. compared to the final electorate. So they're, the, the, you know, when you look at numbers, that's talking about a gap of over a million voters. Uh, and that's a lot to turn out on election day because it's not so, just a million voters because again democrats will come out uh as, as well so that gap is difficult and then when you look at voters of color in texas you see huge surges the, the one that has caught my attention is asian voters just because generally yeah. uh aapi voters tend to be smaller share of the electorate they are in in texas too right now they're about 2.5 percent but number one in a very close race that could be the difference number two uh that group is generally one of the lowest turnout demographics uh, in, in at least in past elections. No group nationally, and the same can be said in Texas, uh, has surged in turnout by more than uh, Asian voters. And you look at that's a catch-all, and it's not necessarily useful by itself. But you know that includes uh, Indian voters, Chinese American voters, Southeast Asian. It's a broad group, but these are groups right. that are tending more democratic. When you look at Kamala Harris's presence on the ballot. And the fact that those voters have found a, a connection and, and representation with her, you see how the president has demagogued and used racist terms um, against Chinese Americans and talking about the coronavirus. It, it's not surprising. In fact, it's it's affirming to see these groups responding and coming out. And seniors, African-American seniors surpassed their total 2016 turnout in Texas about a week ago. I'm saying they, hmm. the, the whole state surpassed it like today. Yeah. African-American seniors surpassed it a week ago. <laughs> so they're, wow. they're fired up and they're coming out. And again, and when does early vote end for Texas? So today's the last day of early in person in Texas. Right. Uh, so there'll be, you know, probably another couple hundred thousand votes cast there. And then there'll be, you know, the mail ballots continue to roll in. 
Um, you know, though, as we've heard a lot of folks saying, uh, reminding folks that if you haven't put your ballot in the mail already, don't do it now. Uh, you know, find out where you can drop it off. Uh, but those votes will continue to come in through Election Day and we'll have, you know, another uh, probably tens of thousands of mail ballots come in. Right, right. Florida. Florida, uh, the opposite of Texas, right? Like for, for those of us uh, like you and I have been 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 around this for a while, you uh, we, we, we it, we're always talking about Florida <laughs> and, and often it's bad memories. But uh, Florida perennially close. It's going to be close this time around. Uh, Democrats built up a huge lead in the vote by mail. Uh, Republicans have been chipping away at that lead in the early in person where they are coming out there. Democrats still have a lead uh, overall, and I'm just talking about party registration at this point. Key thing to remember, though, because I think a lot of the way the media has looked at this is, well, oh, can Republicans get the electorate back to where it was in 2016? Well, that by itself is a challenge. But even if they do, there's ample reason to believe that that that's not enough losing her electorate for right them. because we know independent voters unaffiliated voters seniors in florida um these white college educated voters uh vice president biden's going to perform better with them than we did in 2016 because they've had four years of a trump presidency and those numbers so they'll need to do better than that and i think that will be the challenge um uh for president trump in florida and, and again, I think for your listeners, that's an important thing to keep in mind as they're looking through this early vote data, uh, that just getting back to 2016 levels in turnout for President Trump likely won't be enough just about anywhere. Uh, Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania, um, you know, I, 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 it gets a lot of attention, obviously, because a lot of people believe it's, it's most likely to be the, quote, tipping point state, the state that will put one candidate or another over 270 electoral votes. When you just look at how close various states are, P Pennsylvania is close. Um, obviously, President Trump um, won it in 2016. Uh, it, it's sort of ground zero in many ways for the, the, the type of uh, Trump-Obama voter to the extent that that sort of voter exists. It's hard to believe, but there are those types of voters and there are many of them in Pennsylvania. But then on the other hand, you have Vice President Biden and his roots there and his appeal to exactly that type of voter. The early vote there is a little bit harder to read because there's no state where you've seen more of that polarization of the vote by mail than Pennsylvania, where Democrats have in party registration about a 50 point lead, mm -hmm. which is I mean, it's not I, I did not misspeak, <laughs> uh, meaning re Republicans just aren't voting there by mail. Um, yeah. And I think it's reasonable to assume uh, they will come out on Election Day there. Um, but but again, I mean, it, it's 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 a huge gap. But I think that's Pennsylvania more than any state is going to have uh, that massive differential. Now, the important thing, again, to remember what that means when we're watching election results in Pennsylvania, they can't really start counting those uh, mail ballots until Election Day. Election and there's Day. A couple million of them. And this right. is a state that generally doesn't do a lot of vote by mail. So when you think of these county and local election offices that just literally don't have the apparatus nor experience to handle this many ballots, it could take a while. And yeah. so the first count we're going to see on Election Day will likely be mostly the Election Day vote, which should be overwhelmingly Trump, more right. so than any state. And so, you know, in terms of the hijinks we might see from the president, 
I expect to see the president tweeting about the need to, you know, call Pennsylvania early for him. Uh, right. Uh, the problem is his lead will likely be so significant in the apparent results at that point that no one could possibly take it seriously. Right, right, right. Um, okay, anything else we should be looking at? I think your point about Election Day in Pennsylvania and some of these states, I think, is spot on. It's one of been one of my concerns is that people need to remember that, you know, um, to sort of hit the pause button, you know, we're going to have a we're probably going to have Election Day that goes a couple days uh, as votes come in. A state like Pennsylvania um, will be counting for a little while. I do think, though, if 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 Biden ends up if it looks like he's going to win Florida, that's going to be a really strong signal. Um, right. And that's a faster uh, count. But states like yeah, Florida, North count. Carolina and Arizona have the potential to make it in early night because those yeah. are states that will. We know Arizona two years ago didn't count fast. We, we all remember the Senate race there that took like what, like a week to decide. Difference right. is they, they passed a law that allows them to count their mail ballots earlier now. So Arizona yeah. should be pretty quick. So you look at th- those three and you mentioned that or, or, or earlier in the introduction, I believe, about Arizona. Um, those are states that if Biden is winning um, in in any of those three, it'll look like an early night. Right. Right. All right. Uh, Tom Bonnier, thank you so much, my friend. I really appreciate it. This has been great uh, for breaking this down. And um, we should have you on again afterwards. Maybe we can do a little postmortem. Hopefully it's good. It's a it's it'll be a fun postmortem and not one that <laughs> feels like in, what happened in 2016. Knock on wood. But this is I would great. love that. Uh, can you it's just in terms of peep in terms of just do your, you know, promote your uh, site here targetsmart.com yeah. where uh, uh, also is that's where they can go for real-time insights and so, anything on uh, targetsmart.com uh, we, we're always sharing insights there and then if you want to just jump and it's linked from targetsmart.com but in, in case you have problems uh, find it from there if you just want to look at the early vote we put this public facing dashboard out that lets you see the data we're seeing in the early vote and break it down by different groups a lot of the groups we talked about uh, that's targetearly.targetsmart.com. Um, I definitely encourage folks to check it out or you can just Google target early uh, and you'll find it. Um, but, but please check those out. We always love feedback from folks uh, in terms of what they're, what, what else they love to see there. We like to put things out. We, we believe an informed electorate is a good electorate. So uh, please check it out. Awesome. Awesome. Tom, thanks so much for jumping on the electables. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, Mike, um, this has been uh, this has been great. This has been been one of my uh, most enjoyable episodes. Just sort of going into the data components of campaigns. People don't really necessarily, I, I think, really they see they hear a lot about polling and the advertising piece, but the data piece is what is supports all of that. And it's I think Tom really was able to break it down in a way that hopefully people get a better sense of how campaigns use data and how you know in particular. They're using it now, and then also, you know, also the the the, the being able to interpret these early vote numbers. Um, lots of good things out there, as Tom pointed out in the early vote. But look, uh, there's still an election day. Democrats who didn't vote early still need to come out, um, and there's still places that are doing an early in-person voting. So folks should come out, at, you know, when they can. But uh, um, how are you feeling about things? I'm a uh... I'm pretty optimistic about about things. I um, I'm kind of taken a, taken aback by that uh, statistic about Texas. Um, I think that's pretty remarkable. Even though, yeah, it might not mean anything, but but I think um, 
that's a pretty impressive statistic that more people voted there than all of 2016 right now. Um, yeah. So I I am I'm I'm usually an optimist, but um, feeling pretty good going into uh, going into November. How about you? Uh, you know I don't know I just I I end up. I feel like I'm heading, you know, the day before, you know, it's like the week before the, or the, I'm sorry, the few days before the Super Bowl and the, the Washington football team, when they used to go to Super Bowls 25 years ago, you're just like full of not, you know, knots and nauseous and worried about everything. And you're, you know, it's just, it's, it's, and, and so many things are out of, uh, uh, you, you feel like are a little bit out of your control, especially when you've been working on, you know, I, we've been, uh, I've been working with uh, candidates and committees and organizations for more than a year now for a, a number of them. And it's like a lot of it's out of, out of, out of our control now, you know? And so it's sort of a, a, a position, you know, you feel sort of, uh, you know, you feel like you, you can't, uh, you have this like very kind of um, uh, nervous energy that mm. you're trying to figure out how to direct it. You're not yeah. really quite sure how to do that. Yeah, it's but, hurry uh, up and wait right now. Yep, yeah. yep. All right, my friend. Well, um, uh, we've got a couple more episodes that I know we're trying to get in before the election. So um, uh, some fun ones uh, that I think uh, uh, will be, at least for, for me, it'll be a way to get you know get some of this stress off my mind. But, Absolutely. Um, so um, for my uh, producer, Michael Poquin, this is Doug Thornell. Uh, this has been The Electables, uh, and we'll catch you next time.